Funaway Daily, Oval Day 2 for Westfield London, Westfield Stratford City. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, more extra, less ordinary. That's them, not us. Well, you know, you can make your own conclusions there. Jeff, tell us all about this day in 30 seconds. I will. It started off pretty slowly, 1 for 61 when Australia resumed. Glacial pace, 26 overs, about 40 runs added. Most of those were buys between Kawaja and Labuschagne. He gets out to a screamer at slip from Root. Labuschagne, uh, that is. And then Kawaja after lunch, and a couple go quickly. Broad picks up, a couple gets head out cheaply, um, and then they fall away. They're 6 for 180 odd. They're in a fair bit of strife. The Australian Steve Smith should be run out. Maybe he shouldn't, maybe he's not, maybe he is. He survives, he makes 71. They put on over 100 for the last couple of wickets. Todd Murphy bashes some sixes. Pat Cummins makes 30 odd and Australia get to a lead of 10 runs. A lead of 12 to be precise, all out for 295 which proved to be the final ball of the day. A very classy, clever T20 style catch from Ben Stokes on the rope to give Joe Root his second wicket. He picked up one earlier, that was Alex Carey in the middle stanza which was most problematic for the visitors. They lost 5 for 71 after all the hard work was done um, by Kawaja and Labuschagne, albeit at a glacial pace compared to what we've been conditioned to in the series. One for 54 in 26 overs, just on two and over through the first couple of hours. And yeah, Kawaja, who has occupied the crease for what, more than 1,100 balls in the series yep. or something like that, yep. um, fell to broad just after lunch. It felt like it was going to be one of those broad spells. He gets two wickets in the space of a couple of overs, Kawaja and then Hedu nicks off in single digits and they're on and it feels that way. And somehow Australia guts it out pretty well with Todd Murphy hitting three massive sixes into the, uh, into the uh, JM fin stand late in the day just to give them some pep and Pat Cummins batting all the way through to the end as well. Yeah, it's a curious one. Kawaja, I think it's 11.13 in the series, so if he gets three more, he'll have your radio call sign, um, <laughs> which you'll be able to use on air, I'm sure. Very good idea. But uh, it, you can look at it a couple of different ways, and it's a bit of a, a you know a Rorschach test sort of innings. Was that helpful? Was that not helpful, the way that Kawaja and Labuschagne batted? One argument you can make is they help tire out the English bowlers. They make Mark Wood bowl a bunch. They mean he bowls nine overs in the first uh, first session. Yep. Um, he bowls has to bowl more heavily than he might want to in the innings. They already know that England are down Moen Ali, so they don't have their spinner. Joe Root does a good job in his stead in the end anyway. Um, and they know that Wood's a burst bowler, so basically you go, okay, you've got Wokes, Broad, Anderson, make them bowl lots of spells. And you can argue that that works because late in the day those bowlers are tired and the Australians are able to take runs off them late. But it shouldn't be the lower order having to take the runs off them late. And, and that's, that's where I think it's more compelling to look at a slightly more English style of argument, which is, uh, great, whoop de doo you've been out there, you've batted for a thousand balls in the series, good on you. How many runs did you make? Was it helpful? Because at the point where Australia are seven down, they're seven for 189, they're, they're you know, well behind, and, and they shouldn't get close from that point. They get lucky again in the way that they got lucky at the end of the match at Edgebaston, in that Cummins put on a lot of runs there when you've got no right to expect your lower order to do that. If they do it, it's a bonus. But they were still so far adrift. Um, they were still 190 behind when when, uh, when Labuschagne was dismissed. Right. So is that any use? Yeah, you've made nine of 82 balls, Marnus Labuschagne. You, and you battled hard and it was difficult. And particularly when he got out, that was the darkest it was all day. There was thick cloud over the ground. He was facing Mark Wood. And so, yes, he's, he's fought well to get through it. But could they have tried to at least find a different balance to score a bit more readily um, than, than what they did? Doesn't mean you have to go after the bowling, but was that, was that too far in one direction? Yeah, it may have been in hindsight. They'd probably say that themselves 
But yeah, balanced against the fact that it was the best that England bowled all day was up front. Anderson's first spell was of a really high quality. Maybe all series. I, I thought yeah. England bowled so well through that first three hours. Yeah, you know, that Anderson was beating the edge a lot. Broad was beating yep. the edge constantly. Wood was being wood. It was hard graft, and and they did um, they did battle out. And you know, Labuschagne nine from eighty two is excessive, you might say, in terms of trying to defend it out. But um, they did as you say, get multiple spells into the England quicks. All of them had bowled at least two spells by lunch. And it's the oldest bowling group to play Test cricket together since 1928. And they'd yeah. be aware of that. Maybe not the fact that it's 1928, but that they are older bowlers and they will be presumably It'd be having... It'd funny if they were. Me, yeah, that's right. They're like, yeah, when... <laughs> 1928, yeah, lads. When, when Dainty Ironmonger was yeah. bowling with Don Blackie in the Ashes series of 28-29, that's yeah. when they were really knackered. No, but, you know, we the, want to live up to the mark set by Ironmonger <laughs> and Blackie. Something we've, we've got their pictures on our wall in the dressing room. We've been thinking about them a lot and, uh, yeah, we, well, we're very keen. Well, they've probably played at the Junction Oval where there's a grandstand named after Iron and Black, uh, Iron Munger and Blackie there. Anyway, yes. I digress. Uh, yeah, so in a way it did kind of work. You I should be called Blackie Smith. Yeah, that, that would work Then he'd be with too. an Iron Munger. <laughs> um, where are we? Yeah, so th- look, I didn't, look, it was an old-fashioned opening session where not an awful lot happened other than the Labuschagne dismissal. And that required a brilliant piece of fielding from Joe Root. Maybe not the great, greatest piece of wicket-keeping either. It would have been best, though, with two hands. Had he had... Had he gone, he would have got there with two mitts, and therefore it's the keeper's catch. And with yep. Root, it's a little bit of an afterthought, which adds to the degree of difficulty, but it's the catch of the series. It's a one-hander, gets rid of the bloke who made 100 to save the test, in effect, well, contributing to the rain, but from an Australian perspective, did save the test last week at Old Trafford. And, and they get rid of him when he, sure, he's not set. He's been there for a long time, but he's not fluent or anything like that. But we know the way that Labuschagne can build and the way he can frustrate opposing bowling lineups. And, yep. and that was all Root's doing. And Mark Woods, lovely ball to straighten up off the seam and find the outside edge. And Root, an absolute screamer and, and one that'll be on his highlight reel forever. And we know how England's bowlers have been let down by the fielding in this series. You know, they, there have been so many occasions where they've done the work. Um, they've had to work hard for it. The chance comes and it's not taken. Yep. And so you imagine how much air that would have taken out of Mark Wood if he, he gets that edge, it flies away, and Bairstow stands there and watches it go by, and Root stands there and watches it go by. And, and it's just Root flinging out the right hand. So it was literally behind him, and it was absolutely travelling. So, yeah, Bairstow, a rare instance of Bairstow shouldering arms to one that was about <laughs> two metres wide of his off stump, if you will. But the real game starts after lunch. So I mentioned already that, that Kawaja and Heb were out in quick succession, broad round the wicket gets one. Just to move off the seam to yep. Kawaja and beats him on the inside edge. Starts brilliantly at the head, works him over and gets him out from about the ninth or tenth ball that is out there in the middle. His fifth ball, actually, I've got it yep. written down. The previous ball he hit for four, like a bottom-handed effort, but that was a little bit wider. It was the tempter. That's the one that Head likes to get bat on ball yep. with early and, and nicely pouched behind the wicket as well. Then Mitch Marsh hits. I mean, in a way, it's the moment of the day, right? So Mitch Marsh, you know, he walks in, up against it, hits this gigantic towering six off Stuart Broad. And Broad's response was like, what on earth is this? I'm bowling yep. what could be a defining Ashes spell like for the fourth time. And you've clattered me um, into the sight screen at our end here, the Vauxhall end. Um, and they held their nerve and it's well, Anderson. Well, it's, and it, it's, not, it's not just that he hits a big six, right? And, and well, maybe this, this could be Hall of Fame as well because, because the moment is so great. Everybody in our commentary box, as soon as he hits it, there's about eight of us in there, <laughs> half of us who aren't on air, the, the ones who are. And we all go, oh, 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 wow. Oh. And then we all wait for the replay and we all make the same noises again because, because this isn't just hitting a six and this isn't dancing down and getting to one, you know, getting near the pitch of the ball. This is standing exactly where you are, getting a good length delivery that's maybe, you know, like maybe there's a little bit of movement that the ball's been nibbling around a bit and, and it comes up, it's at the top of the bounce and he drives it front foot on the up 
at the top of the bounce and meets it so cleanly, like so millimetrically precisely in the very, very center of the sweet spot. And it just sounded beautiful and it soars. It just takes flight off the bat and it sails over the boundary. And you're like, you are not supposed to be able to play that shot to a good pace bowler doing a job who's just taken a couple. That is not the shot you're allowed to play. Who can play that shot? Because he's so tall, like you can't play it if you're a bit shorter than that. You've got to be able to get under it to, to meet it. But the precision of the timing and the sweetness of the contact is in the very, very, very tiniest top, top tier of cricket shots. Yeah, like when a baseballer hits a home run, it felt more like that than a, than a cricket shot for six. It was a glorious piece of batsmanship. But then on 16, he chops Anderson on, who you mentioned earlier how well he bowled before lunch, gets his reward there. Then Kerry walks out speaking of hitting sixes Kerry yeah. um, hits a, a huge six across the line from Joe Rudy was into the attack by that point late on um, towards the end of the, the middle session so that goes for six and next ball he advances to a small extent and chips a catch to Stokes at, at, at cover and yeah it, it kind of summed up the session for me is that Australia were trying to bat with purpose but the decision making and I guess the execution left a little bit to be desired more than a little bit to be desired and they went through the middle order in that way and Mitchell Stark was much the same with the, the shot that he played just before team. Well the carry one it's kind of cross batted slapping at cover and he, he hits the ball and before it's even been caught he tucks the bat under his yeah. arm and starts walking off. It wasn't a high catch he slapped it straight but he was like well that's out um, and well, off had, he went. Had they been rolled for 190 or 200 there'd Which be many should have been there'd, there'd be many pieces tonight that would be documenting the the trajectory of Alex Carey in the series or in the tour he made a really important half century here in a 40 odd in the first innings during yeah, the World Test Championship um, and final then a, and then a 66 66 not out I reckon it was and made, made runs at, uh, at Edgebaston Edge another 66 there and um, made yeah. runs at Lords couple of starts at Lords and since the uh, since the stumping with Bairstow he has somewhat fallen off a cliff in terms of his batting but I suppose that that occasionally happens to players on yeah. a long tour but there'd be that easy reference point to the to the final day at Lords but we, we could park all of that because a lot more happened in the final session well yeah a fair bit more happens in that in that they're seven down right and and Stark plays a, a limp pull shot which was a, a, again a, a frustrating sort of shot if you if you're looking for a player to hang in there and build uh, and to stick with Steve Smith who was out there and playing really nicely for it's, it's been erratic in the series he's had he's had a couple of days where he's looked himself and a number of days where he hasn't looked himself and he did look himself today he came out got to four he drove two boundaries straight down the ground from James Anderson um, and and looked looks in the, the kind of mental state where he's he's ready to take on the game yeah and when you've got that happening and then Stark who has been playing pretty resolutely decides to waft at one eight minutes before the tea break you know that's where you think well that's the thing where you're not playing for your teammate but Pat Cummins comes out and does play for Smith yeah so Smith hits three boundaries early in his innings the back-to-back -back you mentioned in his first ball after lunch doesn't hit another boundary for more than a session for the rest of the middle stretch, he doesn't hit the boundary at all. Um, but the way he's working the angles, you're right, it's kind of like the Smith of old across his stumps and being able to flick with Panastri mid-wicket to kind of pinpoint the ball where he wanted. They were moving the sweepers. He was going yep. where the sweepers had been moved from. All of that classy stuff that Smith does at his best. So, yeah, he looked in, in pretty good nick. And then he should have been run out just after T. Now, let's go to that. Um, yep. the, the run out that's going to require a little bit of attention, but we won't bore you with all of our analysis because you've all seen 5,000 replays now. It would have made up your own mind. My simple take is this. You can't expect the third umpire to make a decision like that and give the batter out on the basis of the evidence that he saw at the time because they don't get 45 minutes of analysis from Sky. He did a great job breaking it all down with 
like a million angles, but umpire Nitton yeah. Menon at that point has got like three angles. He's got a split screen and he's got not a, a formal time limit, but the convention is you make your mind up in a couple of minutes. Bumble made a great point on our commentary that he's in that room on his own with no support, trying his best. And, you know, to the credit of Nitton Menon, he made a decision which is perfectly rational and justifiable in the circumstances. However, with all of that said, um, you can also make the case that, that Smith was out and that's fine too. It's one of those where there is so much grey area, it is so subjective that you should in my view, um, be slightly wary of anyone who's a fraction too effusive on this. I, I haven't seen the full forensic breakdown with the three three frame split screen thing yeah. that Sky were doing, so I'm not sure what the point is they were making there. Init when I initially saw it, initially saw the replays, I thought I thought this is out and probably not going to be given because Besto so Besto hits the stumps he hits the stump with his gloves first, a split second before the ball arrives in his in his gloves. But from what the way I was looking at it, I thought the bale is still sitting there. He's moved the stump, but the bale's still in the grooves, which means that by the time the bale comes out of the groove, the ball is in his gloves, which means it's out. Even though he started disturbing the stump first, he hadn't actually broken it. He hadn't taken the yeah. bale out. Um, but you get a very different analysis if you had zing bales in place because the exactly. leg stump would have lit up as soon as his glove touched it, and it would have been a much simpler decision to say, well, that's not out because you've already started breaking it, right? The zing bales light up when there's you know a fraction of a millimetre of space between the magnetic coils, whereas on a on a on a replay without them, you need to be able to visually see that the stump has left the groove, uh, that the bale has left the groove. So I didn't think it had on that replay, um, but after looking at about ten more replays, I thought maybe it does. Maybe at one end it looks like it's lifted a bit, and so you're an umpire having to make a decision. You're not ruling in favour or against an on-field decision. You you are making a new decision on your own, and your job is uh, to give decisions. Benefit of the doubt isn't in the laws, but it's kind of the practice. So can you comprehensively say, well, that's out? Well, probably not, so you, you you give it not, I guess. There's there's a lot here, and you're right. It's gonna prompt a conversation around zing bales in test cricket. Remembering that the I'm zing bales- we didn't have them. We often do. Yeah, the zing bales make the reading of the law different because yeah. You know, the spigot, to use Jeremy Coney's favourite word, um, it doesn't need to be completely removed before the bales are activated. Now, my argument on the podcast before is that bales are, are soon reaching their, uh, their, their, their end of their usefulness on this because in the modern game, we deal so often with things touching other things by you know just grazing things and we're yeah. using um, audio technology on that all the time. We've seen balls that have hit the stumps and the bales don't come off, but we're not there yet. And according to a strict interpretation of the law, that's where it gets harder to assess. We're not talking about just the bale coming out, it's dislodged. And the other part of this is that the second bale wasn't. So, you know, um, second shooter behind the grass, you know, stuff here. But the middle stump, when that's bent back on the stump cam vision, the second bale comes up. The question there is, does that come out of its groove before Smith gets his bat in? That yeah. is incredibly hard to tell. And again, I, I refer back to my earlier comment about Nitton Menon being basically on a hiding to nothing and doing the best he could. And in, in those situations, situations, you know, anyone who goes out and screams too loudly that it's one way or the other, um, remember that um, just remember that it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, yeah, or that you, you could you could make a pretty good case either way. Um, so yeah, that's being right. up there and having to make the decision not enviable. And then you know, Smith goes on and he, and he annoys England and he makes more runs and he gets to 71 and yep. then he, he gives it away in a strange fashion. So he has a big slog at Wokes down the ground that just carries over broad running back and then the very next ball he has a go at one again um, and skies it up in the air and, and the catch is taken by Bairstow running back the other way. What was a slightly timed dash. It was a slightly timed. It's as though Smith made his mind up and the reason it was odd was that he'd put on 54 with 
Pat Cummins, who looked pretty well, said his defensive technique was in good nick. They were 10 overs into the second new ball yep. and they negotiated that. He'd had an LBW that. overturned Cummins. Yeah. He was given out and then had it overturned, missing leg, and he batted well aside from that. Well, my sense was they were going pretty well. And Smith made his mind up. There was the, the slap over long off, which was by a charge. And then there was the big top edge where he was swinging for the pickets in the space of about two or three balls. I didn't quite know where it had come from, whether there, or there must have been a decision from Smith to shift gears. It just came kind of from nowhere, given, as we described before, he batted pretty carefully until T and hadn't really at any stage looked like he was going to try and start playing white ball cricket, but so it proved it, and it so did, was his demise. It didn't make sense. It, 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 and, it, and it was another of those weird Smith decisions where he's had a bunch of those over the last six months or so where he does something that, that seems out of character and, and you wonder where it's come from. So Murphy comes out yeah. and he plays a terrific cameo. Wood's bumping him. Murphy hooks him for sixes three times, um, takes him on. We saw him take on, on Wood at Headingley as well and, and did it really well here today. Made 34, um, batted terrifically given the pressure of the situation when they were still 60-odd behind when he came in. Puts on 49 with the captain, you're right. Three sixes, all off Mark Wood, who, you know, he may not have been at his quickest today, but more or less the fastest bowler going around in world cricket at the moment. And to get underneath it, up and under, a couple of times like Harry Brook yesterday, the other was a top edge, but all of them uh, went into the crowd. They were, that was fabulous. Um, anticipation, I reckon, from Murphy, knowing the short ball attack was coming, three men back for it, two on the offside. A lot of tail enders in that situation are like, bugger it, I'm going to get bombed here. i just got to get out of the way, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with trying to get out of the way of short balls, but he's like, no, 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 I have the game, I have the shot, I'm going to play the shot. Three go over the rope and gets them to within touching distance of um, parity by the time that he's dismissed. They might LBW. Yeah. They're in the lead by five, sorry, when he was dismissed by Wokes, and then Cummins is the last man to fall uh, when Stumps are called at, at 25 yeah, past six. Yeah, trying to smash Root over long on, and again, I thought that was daft. Like They had, what, eight minutes to go until Stumps, or less, six minutes to go. Why, why not make England come back and bowl in the morning you know I, I think you can get caught up in the fact that the tail end stuff was fun and they scored runs quickly but ultimately I think Australia blew it today they had an opportunity to bat much bigger to try to get 120 in front something like that and run the game from there they've turned it into a one innings match now it depends how England bat in the third innings um, and I think if Australia do end up losing this one then they have themselves to blame yeah they'll look back at that middle session losing five for 71 they'll be the best batting conditions more or less we get in the test match the pitch did get quicker it was it was challenging this morning they batted with the lights on for the majority of the day even if the sun did come out after tea so it was hard going um, of course they'll take a lead from where they were but I agree with you that there was a much bigger lead in the offing had one of their established players be it Kawaja or Labashane or Smith really went on with it but it wasn't to be so the one innings match with England unusually in the baseball era walking out in arrears for the third innings I mean they, they only bat one way they're only going to bat for a day at absolute most because they can't bat longer than that in this style uh, but it should be a very entertaining day three Jeff as we move to the final word hall of fame the final word hall of fame is brought to you it by is. Westfield London and Westfield Stratford City it is brought to you by both of those places which are in some <laughs> ways spiritually the same place but they are geographically different places they are both more extra and less ordinary. It feels like a far more sunny day. I mentioned Judith Durham, or rather it was she from Westfield that did, and said um, the carnival is not over at Westfield London or Stratford. Westfield London or Westfield Stratford City in terms of the summer we have ahead of us when the test match ends this week and the series ends as well. Um, 700 places to eat, shop and play across 
UK's biggest shopping centres. 700. That's 13. Like, 13. That's um, like one place for every two balls Usman Khawaja has faced <laughs> in the series. Uh, whether you want to slide tackle your mates during a game of golf at Putt Shack at Westfield London or battle for bragging rights over ping pong, beer pong, darts, pool and karaoke, bat and ball at Westfield Stratford City, there's good times to be had, whatever the weather. Great weather at the moment. Google them. Westfield, London, Stratford City. We bloody love them. What's the bet that on day five, England's team are down there at Putt Shack, Ben Stokes, <laughs> slide tackling Harry Brook while they play a game of crazy golf. Wouldn't be surprised. A couple of quick nominations from me. The first being Usman Khawaja before play in his full batting gear with the exception of the helmet, doing the keepy uppy circle with his teammates and just doing it because why not? Because he's Usman Khawaja. He's allowed to yep. do his warm up in his batting pads, in his thigh pad and all the rest of it. And playing and with the football until 15 minutes before the resumption. Wearing the jumper and the long sleeves as he's done for the entire series. You know, I do not get hot. I do not know what it's like to be hot. I, I made 140 <laughs> in Dubai when it was 45 degrees. I don't care. And how about Kumar Zamasena, who it looks like on face value he was doing a line. He wasn't. He went down into Mitchell Marsh's gloves and burrowed his nose in and pulled out something with his teeth. Mitch Marsh's batting gloves had something hanging off. And you, you, wow. You've got to see the footage to believe it, really. It's it does like look, an OnlyFans. It, look, it looks most incriminating. I don't okay. know how Marsh encouraged Darmasena to burrow his head into his batting gloves you and pull sure, something sure out. sure it wasn't just the, the incredibly potent scent, the musk of Mitchell Marsh, the bison musk, if you will. Yeah, just, it, just really getting a good whiff of, of, I don't know, wrist sweat. Is that a thing? There's a lot of uh, memes as I originally alluded to, doing the rounds on Instagram reels yep. at the moment. Find them if you're interested in this kind of subculture. There would have been a lot of memes as well uh, about the substitute fielder. Um, oh, uh, yeah. You know, uh, George about, uh, Elam, George Mark Elam. Elam's son. The five LBWs that Mark Elam took in, in an ODI. <laughs> um, George Elam running in, doing a Gary Pratt incredible gather, gets the throw in, doesn't hit the stumps direct. Gary Pratt did. If he'd pinged the stumps direct, <laughs> Smith would have been Great up. bit of fielding though. That was a two. And Elam charged in off the rope in front of the Tennyson School, collected and threw it into the turf to gather pace. Bairstow takes yep. it, doesn't take it, whatever. But the key point is, is that um, George Elam has a moment not too dissimilar to Don Topley in 1984 as 12th man when Toppers stood on the rope and the catch was ruled ineligible. Well, Elam today could have put himself yep. alongside Gary Pratt. Instead, he sits with Don Topley. Draw your own conclusions. And I'm going to throw in um, Kawaja after Warner's little balance the ball on the bat thing yesterday when Stuart Broad was running into bowl and just lost the ball and it rolled away towards yeah. mid-wicket and Kawaja ran over to it, flicked it up in the air with oh. his bat and hit it to whoever the fielder was nearby. How have we buried the lead here? Stuart Broad going up to Marnus Labuschagne stumps the ball before he was dismissed and changing the bails over and that ball being the one that gets Labuschagne out and Labuschagne not being happy about the light, maybe the bails and Kawaja not having taken the second run the ball before it and Broad running up to him and saying, thanks for that, mate. So Broad right in the thick of things as always, changing the bails over. Yep. Daniel Norcross loved it. And and my last bit was um, was the way England responded when Anderson got his wicket. Mitchell yep. Marsh dangerous, chops on into the stumps and they went absolutely wild for it, which does tell you that he's not bowling very well, but it was still a nice show of camaraderie. All right, that's us done for the day for Westfield, London and Stratford City. More extra, less ordinary. Thank you for watching. We have a two innings game starting tomorrow. Back at the Oval, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon cannot wait. See ya.